Oh no! Oh. Oh, Do you want the third the third line? No, I want a long and embarrassing silence that will cut out when you edit the podcast. It's... Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 13 of Pith and Moment, a podcast for all things Shakespeare. My name's Kyle Downing. I'm a Shakespeare coach in New York City, and I am joined today by Abby Wild. Abby, how you doing? I'm doing really well. Thank you so much for having me today. I'm super excited. We are both super excited because we spent at least an hour and a half before this podcast even started philosophizing about Shakespeare and talking about the 400th anniversary of Shakespeare's death, which happens to be today. It Happy is. Shakespeare's death day, everybody. Um, so, Abby, why don't you tell the listeners just a little bit about yourself? Sure. Uh, I'm a professional actor, originally from L.A., but now hitting it on both coasts. Uh, my first Shakespeare play that I ever saw was when I was 11. It was Taming of the Shrew, and the first one I was in was when I was 14, and it was also Taming of the Shrew. I had one line, and it was, or Daphne, running through a thorny wood, scratching her legs that one shall swear she bleeds. And she won a Tony for I that. I did. Yes. I did. That one line. Truth. As a 14-year-old. Set the world afire. Great. So... Today's subject that we are so excited to talk about is Shakespeare's heroines. And we have had a lively debate over the past couple of days about what exactly is a heroine. Um, just for example, my list here of heroines that I threw together to talk about on the podcast today includes Viola from Shakespeare's Twelfth Night, Imogen from Cymbeline, Rosalind from As You Like It, and Helena, not from Midsummer Night's Dream, but from All's Well That Ends Well. Yes. So... What exactly do we define a heroine to be? Well, it's interesting to me that you have a very standard definition, I think, of what makes a heroine and what makes an ingenue. Um, I had never heard that philosophy before talking to Kyle about it. I see an ingenue as being an act, uh, a passive character, a character who is an object for another character to act upon, whereas a heroine is a character who is more active, who goes out and changes the world around her. There are certainly characters who have aspects of both. Yeah, and I think that's the, the strongest point in which we agree, because my view of heroine is similar. A, a heroine is someone that happens to the world, and an ingenue is somebody that the world happens to. But where we sort of disagree is where is, is my view that a heroine is somebody who takes action, whereas an ingenue does not simply take as a whole lot of action. Is that right? Well, we had a bit of a difference of opinion on Juliet, yes. who's classically defined as an ingenue, but for my money, I think she's definitely a heroine. I see her as a very active character. She's tra she's uh, trapped in circumstances that are harder for her to react against than the characters that we classify as heroines. So the interesting thing here then is our heroine and ingenue mutually exclusive labels like can one can a character be a heroine and an ingenue is is it a black and white thing or is there a grayscale between heroine and ingenue i think that there is a grayscale i think that the things that separate them are that a heroine is more likely to be at the center of her play whereas mm. an ingenue is more likely to be off to the side such as uh miranda or marina um but I think that a character can be a heroine and be somewhat off to the side, and a character can be an ingenue and be in the middle. And it's interesting, we were talking about, like, so for example, these four that I've, I've put together, I think we would both define as heroines, right? The Helena, the Rosalind, the Viola, the Imogen, even though 
Although Viola is at the center of her play, Viola, the Twelfth Night is sort of episodic and it doesn't necessarily revolve completely around Viola. Um, thinking about heroines as women who are the center of their play, are the leads of their play, and take action within their play, and interestingly enough, are found most often in comedies. Mm -hmm. But we also talked about uh, Julia in Shakespeare's The Two Gentlemen of Verona, mm -hmm. and it seems as though Julia embodies a lot of the qualities of a heroine. She is somebody who dresses up as, uh, as a man and goes out into the woods to pursue her lover and, and takes action and tries to get something done. It's true, she is. And I find it fascinating, Shakespeare's whole axiom that effective women wear pants. Uh, <laughs> but she... But she's not a heroine in that she's not the center of the play. She's not Proteus or uh, Valentine. I'm less likely to count her as a heroine also because I'm not I'm not perfectly satisfied that her actions get her what she wants or get her what she needs. Hmm. At the end of the play, she is back with Proteus, but we are less conflicted about whether or not that's a good idea. Yes, or not. whether or not it's actually a happy ending in that respect. Totally, yeah. totally. I think of heroines as characters who set out to, to write the order of their world. And... Julia certainly sets out to do that, but the order that she restores is not necessarily an order that we are left feel, feeling happy about. The status quo is restored, but we are no longer status quo. So let's then, just for the hell of it, come up with a set of qualifications for our own school of thought okay. that we believe a heroine to be. We, are, we have sort of definitively decided that a heroine is somebody that happens to the world, right? That goes out and take action, I takes agree. action. All right, so we will say number one, takes action within the world of the play. Do you think a heroine also has to have a soliloquy? Um, I don't know if a heroine would necessarily have to have a soliloquy in which, like, for example, like they sort of talk to the audience or talk to themselves or talk to a higher power, but it seems as though just by virtue of them being central to the play, they would. So it's... I ask because I think that Shakespeare often uses soliloquy to denote autonomy for his characters. For instance, Richard II doesn't get a soliloquy until he's no longer a king, until he's a man, until he has nobody holding him up. Hmm. Um, Shakespeare's ingenues don't get them. Marina doesn't have one. As I recall, Miranda doesn't have one. Someone is going to write in and correct me, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, Imogen... I know for a fact Miranda doesn't have one. Um as I was looking for, I was looking for Miranda monologues for a client today. And so, did, no. No, she's got, she's got two monologues and they're both to men. Back to <laughs> Shakespeare. Uh, so Viola has them. Yes. Imogen has them. Well, Helena has them. If we're defining Juliet classically as, a, as an ingenue, then Juliet has a series of soliloquies. So it's does. I mean, if we're creating a grayscale, let's say from, from Helena to Miranda, mm -hmm. then Juliet would be somewhere around like, a, a slate gray or a charcoal gray, a five or a six okay. on a one to ten. I'd buy that. Ten being an ingenue, one being a heroine. Um, or should we make ten a heroine and one an ingenue? I don't know. I don't want to make a judgment call on exactly. whether a heroine it's... is better than an ingenue. No, not, neither one is better than the other. So Heroines and ingenue, you are all valuable to us. So are we saying then that a heroine does have to have a, like sort of an autonomy, like a relationship with the audience? Yes, I would say so. All right, so... Forms a relationship with the audience. 
And what else were we saying earlier about heroines? Um, they they sort of either restore the status quo or or change the world around them in some way. I think that's uh, in falling with qualifier number one. They take action. Oh, they take action within the world of the play, but they also take action against the world of the play. Ooh, yes. You know what? I'm going to change. So it takes action against the world of the play. That fits perfectly for Rosalind and totally. Rosalind and Imogen and Viola too, actually. And Viola, we'll get to that. Viola, I have I, I have thoughts about her heroine okay. status. Great, I can't wait. Um, so to recap, we have a heroine takes action against the world of the play. A heroine forms a relationship with the audience, and can we say a heroine is central to the plot of her play? Yes, I think we can. All right. Is there anything else we want to include? I've noticed that Shakespeare's heroines are always involved in plots centered around unrequited or unrequited love, or uh, sure. or love interrupted in Imogen's case. Um, so Shakespeare's heroines do seem to have that as a qualifier. All right, so a heroine is immersed in unrequited love. Mm -hmm. Now, or let's say in troubled love, because Imogen's love is requited. Sure, sure. Has a Yakimo problem. Troubled love, which actually would help Juliet's case because yeah. she is not in unrequited love. She is in troubled love as well. It's so interesting. We are challenging the notion that Juliet is an ingenue character. But this does make Julia a. Uh, this does make Julia definitely a heroine because she has a soliloquy. Yes. Mm -hmm. She sets out to change the circumstances of her world. She's in troubled love. She has all of those things. Now he here's a question I have then. So when we think of heroine as a Webster. English Dictionary definition, right? Heroine is a woman who does something heroic, right? Mm -hmm. We are now sort of defining heroine within the context of Shakespearean labels. Like, for example, being immersed in troubled love is not necessarily a qualifier of a heroine as a dictionary definition, but it is something that is co-relative with Shakespearean heroines, which is why we can add it to this list. It is not a causative factor, but it is... Yes. A, it is relative. It is, is, it is co-relative. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, correlation without causation. Interesting. I paid more attention in statistics. Yes. <laughs> they totally I, would be valuable in everyday life. I doubted them. I will be the statistics nerd on the podcast as long as you can supply all of the other things. I make no promises. <laughs> Great. Um, so we have four things then that sort of define a heroine as a heroine, and I think these are enough to really cover all our bases. Takes action against the word of the play, forms a relationship with the audience, central to the plot of her play, and immersed in troubled love. So then, let's look at this in, uh, as, through the lens of Viola. Viola is interesting to me. Um, I love Viola, by the way. She's possibly my favorite female Shakespeare character, and I, I know that that's a bold statement to make, and my subject... Mine too. Yeah, my objectivity is not helped by the fact that I've gotten to play her. Um, what I love about her is that in her circumstances, I think she does both the most ridiculous thing and the most realistic thing. For those of you who aren't immediately familiar with Twelfth Night, it begins with Viola shipwrecking on a strange shore. She asks the ship captain where she is and who lives there, and he tells her that there is the Duke Orsino who is in love with the Countess Olivia. And from the text, we're given to understand that Viola has known of the Duke Orsino before. So Viola finds herself alone, penniless, her 
twin brother is supposedly dead. Um, and as everybody knows, when twin brothers are supposedly dead in Shakespeare, that doesn't come back at all. <laughs> and she decides that the best way for her to move forward is to abandon her identity and dress like a man and become a servant to the Duke. That is the most ridiculous thing I think a human being could do under those circumstances. But what happens next is fascinating. She falls in love with the Duke and does nothing to advance her standing with him. She, she really doesn't. She doesn't. She's well, you could argue that in taking his, uh, his ring, not his ring, I'm sorry, taking, taking his message to Olivia, it is it's a, a, some sort of obedience, it's, right? That, oh, she shows love to him, but she doesn't, try, she doesn't try to put herself ahead of Olivia. She never, she, she never speaks against Olivia. She only tries to help Orsino be happy. She tries to get him Olivia. She tries to lay the groundwork for the possibility Olivia will just reject him straight out of hand. The closest she comes to advancing her own situation is her euphemistic speech about her father having a daughter who once loved a man as maybe she sort of loves Orsino. And then she backs off at the end by by jumping back into her cross-dress identity. Sure, she is, she is certainly not forward about taking action based on her desires. But if we perhaps give, give Viola a little bit more credit, which may or may not be deserved, maybe all of this entire like service to Orsino thing and helping him out in whatever way she can is part of a proof of loyalty to him or a proof of love to him that does eventually come back in the end of the play, right? It absolutely I mean, does. So maybe she's just a genius this whole time and was doing all this just as like a, a long game. Possibly. Possibly. I think that... I would I would be thrilled to see a production that played it that way. Sure, but yes. My understanding of the text is such that she she is she she immediately leaps into the friend zone. She puts herself in the position of there's nothing about me that he would love, mm -hmm. especially because I'm dressed like a man and I yes. can't and and I have decided that I can't reveal who I actually am to him. Right. I think that that's I think that when we find ourselves when we find ourselves in heartbreaking crushes of people, we so easily put ourselves in the position of being undesirable and create the we create the circumstances that make it impossible for us to get what we want. And that is what I love about Viola. Yeah. I would love to see a production in which Viola, much like Iago, is a player of everybody around her. And certainly, like, some of the soliloquies don't support that. They are... She, she sort of tends to victimize herself in her relationship with the audience. And really, what helps us define who Shakespearean characters are is what they say when nobody else is around. Exactly. Right? But if there was a production in which Viola was sort of moving pawns around and sort of putting everything in place so that eventually she can reveal her love to Duke Orsino at the end, I think that would be fascinating to see. Perhaps not accurate, <laughs> but we can we can definitely agree that that Viola takes on many more characteristics, I guess, of an ingenue than she does of a heroine. She does. I mean, she's she's uh, she has the soliloquy. She is immersed in troubled love. She is central to the plot of the play, but she doesn't take action against the world. Of the no, play. she doesn't. She goes with the flow, almost almost without exception. Sure. Yeah.
All right, interesting. So next, I don't know how much you know about Cymbeline. I know very little, um, so you may be able to carry us on this part, but Imogen, on a scale of one to 10, how much of a heroine is she? I think heroine's about, uh, heroine, I think Imogen's about a seven. Uh, she has soliloquies. She uh, She's immersed in troubled love. She's central to the plot of the play. She does not, and you know what? I would say that she takes action against the world of the play as she understands it. For those of you who aren't familiar with Cymbeline, Cymbeline is Shakespeare's greatest hits play. You have a woman in pants. You have long lost siblings. You have, uh, you have a husband who's convinced that his wife is betraying him by a man with, uh, with, with, with morally reprehensible motives. You have a war with the English, which is also a war with the Romans. Mm. You have everything that Shakespeare did best crammed into five acts. It's... Where is this play in the canon? Is it near the end? I think, I think it... so, but I could be making that up just because I would like to support my private theory that every time someone went up to Shakespeare and said, when are you going to write another play like Othello? He went and wrote a scene of Cymbeline. <laughs> like, I'd like to believe that it was the play that he worked on every time somebody asked him to write another one like his old ones. Well, because it's very interesting to me. Two Gentlemen of Verona is very, very early in the canon. If it's not his... It, it, I, th I believe Comedy of Errors came first, but yes. Two Gentlemen of Verona came second, and that's sort of... Also a greatest hits type thing. So this is perhaps a conversation for another day. But Two Gentlemen of Verona has all those elements as well. And then Cymbeline has all those elements. But mm -hmm. at the end of the canon, it would be interesting to compare the two side by side. Future episode. We'll talk about the difference between proto-plays and greatest hits plays. <laughs> um, so what happens to Imogen in Cymbeline is that she is deeply in love with Posthumus. And Posthumus was a ward of her father, the king, but her father doesn't want her to marry Posthumus. He wants her to marry Clotten, her stepbrother, who is about as cool as his name makes him sound. Clotten's <laughs> an idiot. Uh, so her father banishes Posthumus away to Italy, and Posthumus goes, and Posthumus meets a man named Iacomo, and Iacomo says, there are no virtuous women in England, and Posthumus says, you lie, sir, and they do what any reasonable men do under this circumstance. They create a bet. And Posthumus bets Yakimo he cannot make his wife betray her honor. So Yakimo goes, meets Imogen, steals a bracelet from her, sneaks into her bedroom while she's sleeping, and looks at her body, and then goes back to Posthumus to report. Posthumus is horrified. He feels he has, he's convinced he has been betrayed by his wife. He orders his servant to kill Imogen. The servant tells Imogen all of this. Imogen is heartbroken. Imogen has been abandoned by her love, and so she responds by dressing in pants and running away to the forest forever. Now, here's my view on this notion, then. Is she really taking action against the world of the play by running away from this, the initial setting of it? She isn't really. Because uh, what happens to Imogen is she just accidentally falls into the hands of these three mountain men who just turn out to be her two long-lost brothers and the army general who stole them when they were babies. She, much like Viola... Small coincidence there. Through us, <laughs> right? I know. The world of Shakespeare plays is impossibly small. Much like Viola, she falls into happiness through a series of extremely fortunate events. Mm-hmm. Yep. She does not... She does not bring those events to happening. Would we say that Imogen is less of a hero, though? Less of 
less of a heroine the way we've defined it, but maybe we need to redefine heroine. Well, but then we're, we're again, we're getting away from the word heroine, right? Mm -hmm. Like, if you think about the most basic qualities of the words hero or heroine, it is somebody that does something heroic. And really, what is heroic then? We, we can't define a heroine as somebody who is not taking action against something, right? Because that is the real definition of a hero. She... Yes, uh, what Imogen does next might fall into that category because she ends up joining the war and she saves, yes. she, she uh, through another series of strange coincidences, she comes across a body which she believes to be posthumous. So now she believes that posthumous is dead. She has nothing left to live for. And so she joins the war. She goes off to battle as a page, as a foot soldier. Again, I do not aspire to lead my life in such a way that circumstances conspire to find me alone in the woods with the body of my lover and deciding to go off and kill myself through battle. But I think in the circumstances of her play, what she does is admirable and courageous. It's, it's an embrace of action as opposed to an embrace of grief. You know, and in that moment, maybe she becomes more of a heroine than she was in the beginning of the play. So Cymbeline might be, Imogen might be expressing the journey from ingenue to heroine. Interesting. Yes. Because in the beginning of the play, the world is happening to her. Absolutely. And then in the end of the play, she is sort of happening to the world, which is what makes Imogen probably the, the either the best or the second best female character in Shakespeare's canon. As far as death, like many people refer to Imogen as the female Hamlet. Like, just, be, like, Cymbeline is actually a really, really good, really exciting play, and Shakespeare's longest play. Um, but it is also not very often produced, because it is very difficult to tie all of these elements together and make it make sense. Absolutely. A production that I saw recently that did all of this admirably was uh, last year's production at the Delacorte, directed by Dan Sullivan, with Lily Rabe and Hamish Linklater. Uh, it was just gorgeous yeah it was beautiful i think i got to see it twice i did i got to see it twice and it, it it's just magical i think it tied all of the elements together very cohesively rosalind is also i guess in the beginning of the play somebody that the world happens to right because she is banished to the woods sure immediately um but she is not necessarily in troubled love like her love is clearly requited yeah. Her love is only troubled because she makes it troubled. Rosalind baffles me because she she doesn't she doesn't she hides from the love, but in a very active and roundabout sort of way. Mm -hmm. I had a friend, uh, my friend Zev Hurwich, uh, directed a production of As You Like It at Underling Productions not that long ago, and his take on the characters were that Orlando and Rosalind were both gifted children. They were both too smart for their own good, and that was sort of why they created that trouble. And I thought that was interesting because it brought it back for me to that whole speech that Juliet has in the balcony scene about, about no, 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 Romeo, do you love me? Because if you do, we need to talk about this honestly because that's yep. a serious thing. You could say that Rosalind's entire wooing of Orlando is her teaching him to treat love the way it needs to be treated. What yep. do you think? I think, I think you're right. I think Rosalind, maybe that means her love is troubled in some way because she, maybe she doesn't believe that Orlando's love is true in the way that she wants it to be true. 
And so she has to put him through this series of tests to make sure that his love is honest and, and what she wants out of love from a man. And it, it makes her such a fascinating female character because so many of these women in Shakespeare are just like, yes, love, I accept it. Mm -hmm. Rosalind is like, yes, love, let me make sure this is really what I want and then I'll accept it. And you know what else she does that I've just put together and that I love is that she creates a context under which it is safe for her and her prospective love to get close to each other because they're alone in the woods. There are no, there's no court etiquette, there's no social construct. She designs a social construct in which it's safe for them to get close to each other and preserve their own dignity. Essentially, what she does is she uh, she creates a theatrical conceit. She mm. casts herself and her lover in a play, and they rehearse for three weeks alone in the woods, mm -hmm. and have a showmance. And at the end of uh, at the end of that, they bring it back to the real world. Now, do you think that's manipulative at all, or do you think it's um, testing him? It depends on your choices with Orlando. Sure. If you play it that Orlando looks at what is obviously a woman in pants and goes, wait a minute, I know what's happening here. Then they're both consenting to the illusion that they've constructed, to the mm. play that they've cast themselves in. They're both enjoying the dance of courtship. If you cast it that Orlando is fully buying into this boy Ganymede wants to pretend to be my girlfriend, what's that about? Then yeah, it's, it's just sociopathic and manipulative. Yeah, and it's so interesting to think about, like, there is no real text in the play that sort of defines that aspect of As You Like It. None! And it's, it's an incredibly important directorial choice, mm -hmm. or a choice by the actor mm -hmm. in the play, that sort of defines how the plot unravels. And that choice also defect, affects how much of a heroine we think Rosalind is, I guess, does it not? Are you saying she's more of a heroine if she's working harder to manipulate him and less of a heroine if he's consenting to be manipulated? Well, if we define taking action against the world of the play as an aspect of being a heroine, she's certainly taking much more action the more control she has, right? Is that unfair to say? I don't think it's unfair to say. I'm not convinced that it's true in this context. Sure, okay. I think that whether or not the world consents to have action taken against it is separate from whether or not you take action. Sure, and in both respects, she is still taking an equal amount of action. It is just about whether or not her action is transparent. And how much action is warranted. Yes, yes, well, there you go. Though That's another element of it, is mm -hmm. how much action is actually warranted affects how much action must be taken. I think something else that needs to be examined when you discuss heroism in As You Like It is... Is As You Like It a play for heroines? Because As You Like It is in many ways a farce of the pastoral romance comedy. Mm -hmm. And it's often, it's often more about poking fun at romances through Touchstone and... Um, Audrey. Audrey, through Phoebe and Sylvius, yeah. through... Uh, 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 Celia. Celia, thank and you. And Oliver. And Oliver. There we go. There's so many characters in this play, and they're all in love with each other. And a giant wedding at the end sort of ties a neat little bow. Absolutely. Yep. That's, uh, so this is kind of off topic a little bit, but it's so interesting how in tragedies, sometimes Shakespeare gets himself wrapped up in these plots so much that the only way to get out of it is to have a deus ex machina or have everybody die. 
The George R.R. Martin effect. Yes. Yes. And how in comedies, it's sort of the same way, except instead of everybody dying, it's like, well, everybody gets married in one giant wedding and it solves all the problems I've set up in this play. Absolutely. He uses wedding as, he uses wedding as uh, prize and wedding as punishment in comedies mm. all the time. So, back to the original subject. Of course. Where were <laughs> uh, Yes. Um, so, then we say that Rosalind does, is central to the plot of her play, is immersed in love that she believes to be troubled, mm -hmm. right? Or at least untrue in some way. It's dangerous um, love. Because if she just, it, it's, it's risky love. Because they're alone in the woods, and if she just leaps into it head first, she might get in over her head. Yes. So we, we can sort of work that to fulfill this requirement of being a heroine. I'll buy it. And uh, she does... I mean, although she has... she The world happens to her at the beginning of the play when she's banished, she is taking action against the world of the play in that there are sort of societal ideas of what love is, and she challenges that in a way, does Absolutely. she not? Absolutely, and not just in the in the circumstances of her own romance, the way that she addresses uh, Phoebe and Sylvia. She's affecting change everywhere she goes. Mm -hmm. I would argue, I think, that if uh, if if Viola is a an ingenue who looks like a heroine, and Imogen is an ingenue who becomes a heroine, uh, Rosalind is a heroine in a world that doesn't call upon heroics. Mm, interesting, yes, because there is nothing heroic necessarily for her to do. She doesn't but, need to be a heroine to get what she wants. But she finds something to be heroic within, I right? So. Which is, I mean, when there's not, like, danger present in everything, it's, you know what, I'm going to solve the problem of what romance is in my society because I believe that romance is really messed up right now. Yeah, she is heroism as performance art. Yes. That's what she does with her life in the confines of As You Like It. Yeah. Oh man, I love Rosalind. I need to play her. Now. Yeah, no, she, Rosalind is a fascinating, fascinating character who I guess we have decided takes action even when there is not much to take action against. She finds something that she wants to solve about the world around her, which is really, in a sense, heroic. It is. It's commendable. The last... Um, qualification of a heroine that we have not discussed with Rosalind is whether or not she forms a relationship with the audience. And it's interesting that she doesn't until the very, very, not even the end of the play, but after the end of the play. Yes. The epilogue. So she, I forgot because she has a few beautiful speeches and monologues, but none of them are directed to the audience nope. until the epilogue when she turns to them and basically says, so what did you think about all that? Yeah, and it's, it's so interesting that although Rosalind is the character that's central to the play, Orlando actually sort of has a monologue to the audience or like not to the audience but like you know when he's talking about sticking the the notes on all the trees and everything yes. like that is sort of his alone on stage moment Rosalind doesn't necessarily have that she's always talking to Celia or to Orlando or to the Duke Frederick or whoever but you know this separate from the definition of heroine versus ingenue this supports my newly found thesis about Rosalind as an allegory for the actor manager because she's orchestrating and stage managing everything that happens in the forest until the end when she comes out and does her post-curtain speech. Mm -hmm. and, yeah. and does her, did you enjoy the show? I, I don't think that her lack of direct address disqualifies her as a heroine. But we can't even say that there's a lack of direct address because at the end, she does come out to the audience and say, 
check out all this stuff that I, that just happened. But right? isn't she technically out of character when she does that? Ah, that's see, that's a whole other thing because I mean, as we know in Shakespeare's time, Rosalind would have been played by a boy. Mm -hmm. So there are many things in the epilogue that sort of allude to. Uh, I'm, I'm a boy, and I was playing a girl, and this, 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 this. Because yeah. a boy would probably come out on stage as a boy in mm -hmm. the end, right? Because the, the interesting, there's the interesting thing about the idea of a boy playing a girl playing a boy, right? Right. The boy is Ganymede most of the show, but it's under a Rosalind costume, right? So a boy dressed up as a girl further dressed back up to look like a boy, but then at the end those layers come off and perhaps it's just the plain male actor that is, has done the role. Yeah. At which point, at which point the direct address becomes not about the struggles of Rosalind in her world, but about the commentary on, uh, the, the commentary on the gender roles we play to get what we want. Yep. Woof. Rosalind is performance art, people. Yes, this yes. is... <laughs> This play is something that we will have to delve much more into some other time. To be continued. Yes. Now, final heroine, Helena. Helena. All's well that ends well. I think, of all the women we've talked about so far, Helena is probably the furthest on the heroine scale. I would definitely agree with that. She is the most active. She, uh, she has a relationship with the audience. She is central to the plot of her play, and she is immersed in troubled love. And she is crazy active when it comes to changing the circumstances yep. of her world. I, I have thoughts about Helena. She is, she, she is a fascinating character, and I'm not convinced she's one that I'd want to live inside of. Because she does, mm. and we're talking about whether or not what Rosalind does is manipulative. And what Helena does is manipulative <laughs> from stage one. Yep. So what Helena decides to do... Uh, the king is very, very ill, and Helena, as the daughter of the world's best physician, happens to have the cure for his illness in her back pocket. And she gives it to the king, but only if he promises that he will give her anything she asks for after, which is manipulative step one. After she cures the king's illness, she stages this big public pageant at the gates of the city, which is always a bad move in Shakespeare, I think, where she goes from eligible bachelor to eligible bachelor, uh, staging essentially a bachelorette rose ceremony of, mm. will I pick you? No, I will not. Will I pick you? No, I will not. She goes to the Count Roussillon, or Roussillon if you're going by the French pronunciation, but I've always heard it as Roussillon in production, so make your choice. She goes to Bertram, and she publicly declares her love for him, and he turns her down. The king and the countess berate him, they make him marry her, he refuses to consummate the marriage, and he goes off to war. And she goes off on a pilgrimage to uh, Spain, I believe. We come back to Florence, where Bertram is, where he's in the process of wooing a virginal maid who does not want to be wooed for obvious reasons. <laughs> and Helena pops up in Florence, remarkably out of the way of her pilgrimage, and orchestrates the bed trick, whereby she will get the virgin to tell Bertram that they're going to have an assignation, and in the dark, she will slip into the bed in the virgin's place, Bertram will consummate his marriage unwillingly, and then they will all meet back in France, and all will be made right again. It's it is the most action that any of these women have taken. It's action-packed, but it's also, and I didn't realize this until a friend of mine who was in Measure for Measure playing Angelo told me, 
where a very similar thing happens. Essentially, she rapes Bertram. Yeah. She forces him to have sex with somebody he has not consented to have sex with. And although Bertram is portrayed to be a morally reprehensible creature and a bit of a dick, we get... Yeah, you, you, it, it does not justify a rape. It is marriage and sex by punishment in a Shakespeare comedy, yeah. and that always makes me feel squicky in a delightful I want to talk about this after the play sort of way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and in, in a way, is that not her affecting the world more than even most Shakespeare heroes affect the world? What Helena does is, from the outset of the play, she knows what she wants, she has decided what she wants, and the entire play is her working the world around itself in order to get her to that place. Absolutely. To what she wants. And it affects many people's lives, especially Bertram's, right? So when she finally does get him into bed and do the whole bed trick thing, she has actually, she has actually molded the world into the way that she has wanted it from the beginning of the play. Almost, and I hate to bring up Iago in every instance like this, but like, like Iago... But that in a way. brings me to my point, because she fulfills all of the requirements of being a Shakespeare heroine, except she doesn't do anything heroic. She rapes a man and she fakes her own death to get what she wants. So is she a villainess? I think so. I mean, I think that if you were to produce All's Well That Ends Well for a modern audience, I'm not saying it wouldn't be a comedy, but I am saying that Helena is not somebody who you want to be and not mm. someone you want to be with. But, and that's that's the magic of it. Like, just by the virtue of this play being a comedy, we don't have to look at it through that lens of, oh my gosh, she raped somebody. We look at it through the lens of, oh, bed trick, that's so funny. You know, and it, it sort of just affects the, the gravity of the situation. Does that make sense? It does. It does, and it, you know, at the current... At the current cultural zeitgeist, um, where we're having so many conversations about gender roles and consent and sexual power, I think it would be difficult to produce this play as a comedy right now. Uh, I'm not saying that it, it, it is not funny. I'm saying that it's not comedic. I'm saying that, that you would have to work very hard to create the circumstances in such a way that we can all agree that Helena is a villain, but so is Bertram. And they both give as good as they get. Yes. Well, it, so you, another thing that you mentioned is doing this play like for a modern audience. Back then, it was it was sort of it was an arranged marriage, right? Mm -hmm. So it was supposed to happen. He was the villain by not consummating their oh, marriage, totally. and she sort of makes the world right again. So if we're looking at it through an Elizabethan lens, then she is. She is doing something heroic. She is making the world how it's supposed to be. She was restoring the the culture of the play. But, um, bring up an interesting point, because in Elizabethan times, I don't know if you've read Stephen Greenblatt's Will in the World. If not, you should. I'll lend it to you. Where he talks about how, uh, how, how, how with this explosion of theater and with printing and with textiles and... That there was suddenly much more social mobility between the lower classes and the higher classes. Hmm. You could educate yourself. You could get good clothes secondhand. If you were an actor, you could ape the courtesies of the higher classes. And there was this low-level radioactive fear of the lower classes infiltrating the upper classes. And Helena is a lower class infiltrating the upper class. So mm. she might have been somewhat villainous in Elizabethan times, too. Anyway, yeah, yeah. So then, basically... <laughs> 
what you're alluding to is that even in Elizabethan times, because she was infiltrating the upper class, she would be a villainous anyway, even if she is restoring the status quo or the, the rightful world, yes? I'm saying that with Helena, you have a character with the actions of a villain and the language of an ingenue heroine. <laughs> and is, that's, I mean... there's a very interesting conflict there. And I think that it's, I would like to believe, because I want to believe in Shakespeare as a proto-Colbert and not a proto-O'Reilly, that when he put controversial and offensive things into his plays... It was through an ironic lens. It was through yeah. an ironic lens, and he wanted you to leave the theater talking about what yep. it meant. Yep, that's exactly right. Boy, it, so when we were talking yesterday, listeners, I was very convinced that there was heroines and there were ingenues. And now I'm more convinced that than ever... That it is not only a grayscale, but some sort of weird convoluted color wheel that has many different branches and blends between labels. And, I mean, it is interesting to think about how there are sort of similarities between Helena and Macbeth. And I know I might take flack for saying that, but... I mean, you Macbeth... will never take flack from me for comparing disparate Shakespeare characters. Uh, I just meant wise. Twitter flack, which I don't really care about anyway. Take that Twitter; he doesn't care about. <laughs> but it, Macbeth sort of sets out to do something to get what he wants, and we we have this debate all the time in the Shakespeare community about whether or not Macbeth is a tragic hero. Like, does he do anything heroic? No, he just takes action to get something that he wants, and mm -hmm. that is not necessarily heroic. That is self-centered, and Helena is doing something very similar in that she is taking action to get what she wants, but there are arguments over whether that is good. We can come back to this when we talk about Macbeth, but what's interesting is that Macbeth's journey is that he goes from feeling really morally conflicted, feeling all of the moral pangs of his action before he does it, and then after that he loses all of his moral compunction. Mm -hmm. Helena never has any moral compunctions. At no point does she say, I yeah. wonder if it's okay for me to be manipulating Bertram this way. Yeah. Never. What? It, does that make her worse? Or does that mean we should look at this play and say, oh, well, because she doesn't have any moral compunctions, maybe what she is doing is the right thing. Like, is it, is, does it say something about her that she's worse, that she doesn't examine anything? Or does it say that she is actually heroic because, oh, she doesn't have to examine anything. That's how we know she's doing the right thing. Yes. Yes. It's definitely one of those two it's things. It's definitely, well, it's definitely one or both of those things. Yes. Yep. Cool. Well, we have done a lot of examination of heroines, and really, we haven't defined anything any more than we had defined it at the beginning of the podcast, but we certainly have come to some interesting conclusions and have a better idea about what this label heroine is. Mm-hmm. So up next is the rhetorical device of the day, and today I have selected Perelkan, which is defined as the addition of superfluous words, such as using two words where one would normally stand effectively, such as a character saying, for why. Um, and the examples I have pulled up from Shakespeare's text are Camillo in The Winter's Tale, in which he says, forbid the sea for to obey the moon. Now, we can look at this sentence and say, oh, forbid the sea to obey the moon. That makes sense as itself. But by Shakespeare adding this word for in there, it 
number one, the most important thing, makes the meter stand, right? Mm -hmm. Forbid the sea for to obey the moon. Filling the iams is key. Exactly. But, as an actor, we have to look at something like this and say, well, why is this character adding this superfluous word? Like, what does that say about the character's pattern of thought? Like, one of the things that jumps out to me is... Maybe the character doesn't have their thoughts all completely tied together and is still thinking about what they want to say while they're talking. In this case, finishing off the metaphor. Oh, absolutely. I think that's always a great place to go when the words uh, seem to go in opposite directions. Yes. I think another, uh, another justification you can explore is, is the character trying to ape a meter of speech to which they don't have full ownership? For instance, in everyday life, we sometimes use words that we don't fully understand when we want to be perceived as mm -hmm. more intelligent than we are. And so is this character adding extra syllables because they want more syllables to ornament their speech? You know, it's so fascinating that this is coming up right now because um, I am in the midst of a two-year Meisner program at the William Esper Studio, mm -hmm. and my current scene we're doing like restoration comedy and just like language pieces right and my scene is from the rivals and i am doing the scene where captain jack absolute is talking to mrs malakoff and mrs malakoff is also this character who is was not born into an upper class but she has she has built up her speech patterns in such a way that she believes that she seems more intelligent right and in that she she has just sort of learned many, many big words that she can use at various points of conversation. But it ends up being the wrong word sometimes. Like she uses preposition instead of proposition. Or explode instead of expose. Or my favorite, she says, um, he is the very pineapple of politeness, in which she means pinnacle. And in this case, perhaps you're right. Camilo might be trying to reach above his station by using language that he believes is more flowery and perhaps seems more silly instead. Absolutely. Um, other examples of Perel Khan, um, Queen Margaret from King Henry VI, Part One, says, And if my father please, I am content. Not and if my father please, but an if. And in Shakespeare, we know that an also means if, or something very similar to it. Mm -hmm. We had a lively debate before the podcast over about what really Anne means or stands in for. We did, and the conclusion we came to is that Anne can mean a number of things. Mm -hmm. It's often there to fill an I am or to enforce an if. Sometimes it means but, sometimes it means though, sometimes it means as long as. In this case, uh, we, figure, we figured out that it is often a Perelcon article. Yes, and it sometimes, like, the, the um, Shakespeare lexicon and quotation dictionary defines and in multiple ways, but one of them um, says, and if equals if. So we know just by that that sometimes it is truly superfluous. Um, and certainly, I like how you use the word enforcer because it does sort of reinforce the word if, and maybe that's another function of Perelkan. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's for emphasis in some way. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's for reinforcement of whatever the character is saying. But even in these instances, like, for two, like, those are n unimportant words, right? And, and if. It, it just seems as though largely it is to complete the I am. But 
at the same time as actors, we have to do this. We have to look at something like this and be like, why would this character use this speech in this way? Because it's got to be for a distinct reason other than the author put it there to help him. Absolutely. Uh, but as we were discussing before the podcast, you all should have been there. It was a lot of fun. Um, the cool thing about... You're invited next time. Seriously, it'll be great. Uh, when we figure out that a word is there for stupid poetry reasons, it frees us up to use our imaginations to justify that word in whichever way it fulfills our character best. Um, so it's important. I, it's, it's always important to figure out if the four is there because it's Perelcon or if the four is there because it means four. Miranda, in Shakespeare's The Tempest, has a line that says, Had I been any god of power, I would have sunk the sea within the earth, or ere it should the good ship so have swallowed, and the frauding souls within her. So, or and ere, in this case, both mean before, prior to, mm -hmm. in advance of. And it is not necessary to have or before ere. Have sunk, I would have sunk the sea within the earth ere it should the good ship so have swallowed and the frauding souls within her. Makes perfect sense. Or air completes the meter, of course. But also, Miranda is an ingenue, right? Or as much of an ingenue as a Shakespearean character can be on our grayscale. I'm going to say she's on the ingenue side of the spectrum, sure. Yes. Um, and sh sort of, even, even what fascinates me about her is even something that she has seen. Like, she saw a ship sink. But that is happening to her so much that she has this... One of her longest speeches in the play about how she felt about this ship sinking and those those poor, frauding souls that, that went underneath mm -hmm. with the ship. She even has, like... One of my favorite things about this monologue is, is that it has a parenthetical phrase inside of a parenthetical phrase at one point. And it just sort of, like, that among so many other things, along with all the enjambment mm -hmm. in this monologue, like, none of the, like, almost none of the lines are end stopped. Mm -hmm. All these things together tell me a lot about her, how her breath pattern is erratic and how her thoughts aren't completely together and something is happening to her at this time almost as though she is having a panic attack. Mm -hmm. And when you are not in... When, when I am not in my right state of mind, let's say, I am more likely to use superfluous words to, in, in, um, in the process of forming my thoughts. Yeah, and in fact, you could, just as you were talking about for Camillo with four, you could make the, uh, you could make the case that when she says or air, the or is leading into another thought that she drops before she goes on to air. Because mm -hmm. she says, had I been any god of power, I would have sunk the sea within the earth or... And she can't think of anything worse than sinking the sea within the earth. So she goes mm -hmm. to the end of the thought, which is, before I would have done this thing. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So, actors or language geeks, the next time you see Perelkan in your Shakespeare play, just try to figure out how to use it. Don't just be like, yo, Shakespeare put this in here for the meter. you you got to figure out how to make it work. Mm -hmm. You have to figure out how, the language, how to make the language work, and that's really our only job as actors doing Shakespeare is figuring out how to make the language work. If the director asks you why you said that, never say because Shakespeare wrote it down. <laughs> it's the moral of the story. Yep. Or any author. Really. Especially if you're doing Mammoth. Don't say because Shakespeare wrote it down. <laughs> anger everyone in the No one will like that answer. Especially David Mammoth. Especially Mammoth. He will be displeased. Um, so, the next segment... 
I have planned for us. It's very exciting. This is the trivia game of the day. And in celebration of the 400th anniversary of Shakespeare's death, yay, yay. So I have compiled a list of the 400th line in 10 different Shakespeare plays. And listeners, what I'm going to have Abby do is try to guess the play by the 400th line. Now, since that is obviously very difficult to guess a play by 10 or 11 syllables, depending on feminine endings and Alexandrians or whatnot, um, I have compiled the 400th through 404th lines, and Abby gets five points if she can guess it by the first line, four points if she can guess it by the second line, and in descending order until, God forbid, she cannot guess the play at all based on the ridiculously arbitrary text I have pulled up. So, the first one, character one says, This island's mine by Sycorax, my mother. That would be the Tempest, and it is Caliban. Character two, lechery, I defy lechery. There's one at the gate. That's Sir Toby in Twelfth Night. That is. The third play, Character four says, from top to toe, and character five says, my lord from head to foot. From top to toe, my lord from head to foot is the shared 400 line. I want to say Merry Wives of Windsor, but I'm really not sure, so let's go for the second line. All right. Um, The second line is, then saw you not his face. Oh. You can see the wheels turning. She knows what it is. She's heard it before. I have. Oh, no. Oh. oh Do you want the third, the third line? No, I want a long and embarrassing silence that will cut out when you edit the podcast. It's <laughs> from top to toe, my lord, from head to foot, then saw you not his face. <gasps> Hamlet! It, it is, is Hamlet! Hamlet. Oh. We just high-fived. So, four points. Killed me. Um, The number four is, will it not be? This one's a little bit tougher, obviously, but that is the entire 400 line. I'm I'm going to need the next line. Faith, Sira, and you'll not knock, I'll ring it. Oh, that's... um... That's uh, Petruchio and Gr- and Grumio in Taming of the Shrew. That is correct. This is... You're blowing my mind. This is very impressive. At last, all of those hours alone without friends reading Shakespeare <laughs> plays comes back. Number five, character eight says, If it were done when tis done, then twere well. It were done quickly mm. by Macbeth in Macbeth. That's correct. Isn't it crazy that the 400 line starts on that monologue? Right? Um, number six. Character nine says, Are you not moved when all the sway of earth... That's Julius Caesar and Holy. it's Casca. Yes, that is right. I've never seen anything like this. <laughs> um, number seven. Character ten says, I never should forget it. Wilt thou not, Jewel? Quoth he. That is the nurse in Romeo and Juliet. That it is. Number eight. Character 12 says, And will as tenderly be led by the nose. I need the next line. 
as asses are. And will as tenderly be led by the nose as asses are. I think I'm about to break my streak. I think this is something I haven't read before. No, it's not. Oh, no, it's not? All right. <laughs> you know I know this. And will as tenderly be led by the nose as asses are. Give me the next line, please. I have it. It is engendered. Hell and night. It is engendered. So it's two characters plotting, and I, it feels like Twelfth Night, but it's not, because we've already got Twelfth Night. Mm -hmm. So, other plays where people plot are um, Much Ado About Nothing, but Don John would not be tenderly led by the nose because he's a bastard. So, it could be Two Gentlemen of Verona, but Proteus plots with himself, so he wouldn't say this to anybody. Mm. Hmm. It could be Rodrigo and Iago and Othello. I have it as engendered, but I don't think it is. I need the next line. Must bring this monstrous birth to the world's light. Ooh, a rhyming couplet. That must mean... It's the end of the scene. But it's... And will as tenderly be led by the nose as asses are. I have it. It is engendered. Hell and night must bring this monstrous birth to the world's light. You have ten seconds. Oh, no! I'm putting you on the clock. Because oh, no. we have to move on. Oh, no! All right. I, I'm done. Take a guess. Wild uh, guess. Uh, and, and, and will as tenderly be led by the nose as asses are. I have it. Gendered hell and night bring this monstrous birth to the something thing. It's, <laughs> it's is it Othello? It is Othello. Shut up! Yes, that's Iago, <laughs> and he is actually plotting by himself. You'll be happy to know. So that is points. Then for the ninth okay. of the the ninth question, we have character fourteen saying, "Can I not say I thank you?" My better parts. Can I not say I thank you? My better parts. Next line, please. Can I not say I thank you? My better parts are all thrown down, and that which here stands up. Is it as you like it? It is as you like it. Ha ha. It's Orlando and as you like it. It is Orlando and as you like it. Um, and the final. Mm -hmm. Number 10. Character 16 says, And I, no friends to back my suit withal. But the plain devil and assembling looks. It's Richard III. Yes, it is. Oh, right. <laughs> yeah. It took some longer than others, but you have gotten every single one right, which I don't think has been done in the history of the podcast. Yay! So that is a total of... Uh, let's see. 46 points, or pointlesses, because it's not an evaluation of... How smart anybody is. But did I get more points than anyone else has ever gotten before? Probably. The, po the awesome. points aren't continuous throughout. Like, some of You did better at this game than I've ever seen. That was impressive. Ladies and gentlemen, Abby Wilde got every single play <laughs> right by just barely straying off the 400th line. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much. That was so much fun. <laughs> All right. So, the next segment of the podcast we have today is... I think this is actually my favorite. I say a lot of segments are my favorite, but this one is actually my favorite. Mm -hmm. Tyrant Producer. Mm -hmm. And the confines of Tyrant Producer are that some 
crazy rich person has given you three million dollars if you'll direct his production of a Shakespeare play. Yes. You get to keep all three million dollars of that, but the catch is you have to do this play justice. You have to put your name on it, and many many people are going to see this production directed by Abby Wilde or directed by Kyle Downing, and therefore you have to make it good. But you have to use their crazy idea and make it work. So today's tyrant producer says that you have to direct a production of Twelfth Night in which there in which three characters have an anxiety disorder and one of them has to be Viola. Alright. So I I'm actually very excited by this concept, but let me voice the disclaimer that I uh I did not take psych classes. I do not have a working knowledge of specific anxiety disorders mm -hmm. outside of the way they are portrayed in popular media, which I recognize is often incorrect. Mm -hmm. So if anyone listening to this has an anxiety disorder and I misrepresent it in the way I'm about to speak, I apologize. It is not intentional. Please educate me. Or yes, tweet us with, you know, some extra information. So I that would we... love that. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think Viola is absolutely a candidate for an anxiety disorder because she's got this, uh, she, 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 she has this fear of what will happen to her if people know her for who she is. Um, it's not imposter syndrome, but it's close. It's, uh, imposter syndrome is when you're very successful at something and you're worried that you're actually not and pretty soon everyone is going to find out. Mm -hmm. I think that Viola's anxiety disorder would be portrayed by this fervent this fervent need to keep up to keep up her, the facade, uh, her yeah. facade. I wonder I wonder if she would be a compulsive liar because she's given many opportunities to tell the truth and doesn't. Mm, yeah, interesting. Um, Olivia would absolutely have an anxiety disorder. Sure, of hers course. Is, hers would be agoraphobia. I mean she she cloisters herself from the entire world. She uh, barely admits suitors. She veils herself. She swears that she will water her chamber round with tears every day for seven years, um, which isn't necessarily due to a fear of people. That's, oh, no, no, no. She's got obsessive compulsive disorder. Interesting. Yes, okay. she does. Or does Malvolio have obsessive compulsive disorder? You know, okay, so this is an interesting element that I thought about. Um, before asking you this question, before making this segment, mm -hmm. is that if Viola has an anxiety disorder, who else in the play might, just by design, have an anxiety disorder? Mm -hmm. Sebastian, her twin brother. Oh, right? absolutely. So, and, and that doesn't necessarily have to be the case. Um, so, but if we, if we are making Olivia and Malvolio the ones that have the, the anxiety disorders, which, you know... Interestingly enough, by Malvolio's seeming ego and by virtue of his, his station within the household, it makes sense that perhaps, especially when he finds a letter, he just has this overwhelming anxiousness to, to finally rise above his current station. But he also, he has this, this he, he, he will follow every, every uh, I forget what the exact line is, but he'll follow every mandate point devised in mm -hmm. the letter. He will... And he does. Point device, yes. Point device. He follows He follows them word for word. So he's got, there's something in him that's compulsive, that, that's compulsive about getting things right. Yes. Yep. Mm -hmm. So then how do we, if, if we're picking, let's say then we are picking Viola, Malvolio, and Olivia. Let's say. How do we make this play work? How do we not only 
color their anxiety disorders and draw attention to them, but use them to advance the story. I mean, I don't. I feel like those were the first three characters off the top of my head. But if I can, if I can only have three characters in this play who have an anxiety disorder, I don't know that those are the disorders that um, that motivate the plot the best. Mm -hmm. Honest. Honestly, if I were actually directing a production where three characters had anxiety disorders, Viola would not be one of them, because Viola plays the straight man to everybody almost mm -hmm. all of the time. But since Viola has to be one of them... Because the tyrant producer says so. I didn't say it. It's the tyrant producer. That, that jerk. You know who else is an interesting candidate for this is Antonio. Yeah. With all his worry and concern about Sebastian. He has abandonment issues. Yeah, maybe. He does. Yep. He has abandonment issues. Sebastian has a fear of commitment. Viola has a fear of commitment. That's what they share. Sebastian and Viola have fear of commitment. Yeah. And uh, Olivia has either obsessive compulsive disorder or agoraphobia or both. Sure. And yeah, I'm going to stick with Malvolio's obsessive compulsive disorder because it makes it makes sense to me that he would... That, that his imposing his strictures on how the household should be run would be irritating to everybody else. And it furthers my idea that Malvolio is the tragic hero of the, hero of the play. Really? We'll have, we'll have to have that discussion some other time because that's very interesting to me. I played Malvolio once and it was a wonderful, glorious experience. And I loved every minute of it. You're going to tell me all about that. I will. Okay. Um, so, then... I didn't really answer your question about <laughs> how those three characters interacting would advance the play. Yes, or even if we're choosing those three characters. But it's... I mean, my first instinct would be, especially with Viola, if we, we have to choose her, would be to call attention to how badly she wants Orsino to be in love with her. Yeah. And use that as sort of the driving force for all of her actions or weak actions, as we earlier discussed in this play. Uh, or, or her as the cause for her inability to follow through on them. Well, yeah, I think that what this uh, production concept does is it highlights the uh, one of the underlying messages of this play, which is that I think the cons our conceptions of ourselves are what keep us from getting what we want. Yep, and her fear of rejection, perhaps, is like the driving mm -hmm. reason she doesn't take as much action as perhaps she could. Absolutely. Yeah. And then with Malvolio, his... His anxiety disorder is why he takes action so specifically and follows everything point device. Yeah, and I think that he has a cons and I think that even separate from this concept, just objectively, Malvolio has this belief that if I do these things that have been outlined for me, then I get happiness. He mm -hmm. has this kind of cookie cutter approach to life. Yep. Um, I think that that might not be obsessive compulsive disorder. No, I'm I'm thinking of like. People that follow prophecies to a T or something. I, I wonder if there's like a, an actual label for that, you know, or like people that are obsessed with horoscopes or I don't know. There's there's probably some psychological term for something like that. But probably. Let's say there's something going on, and if Malvolio truly believes that he must follow every single detail of this letter and this prophecy to the T, or he will not be able to get Olivia and rise above his current station then that really ups the stakes in the play. It does, him. and it also makes what Mariah does much meaner. Because yeah. she's, been, she's been living with Malvolio long and enough she would to know, know yeah. that if she writes that letter, he will do it. Interesting. So we, we can also then, to help this production in particular, sort of paint Mariah as a more, um, male what, what's it? malevolent character. I think so. Yeah, and who's doing it intentionally to 
maybe hurt Malvolio rather than just toy with him. Well, I mean, it, it throws into relief the characters who we're saying do not have anxiety disorders and the way that they yeah. treat them, because Mariah and Toby and Festy all remind you, throw Malvolio in a madhouse, yeah. and uh, Festy pretends to be a... To pr pretends to be visitors. And, they, and oh. that madhouse scene would then, with an anxiety disorder, like, Horrifying. really amp out. And then, and, you know, maybe it's it's sort of like, it's sort of a dark theme for a comedy, but then, like, you know, anybody who picks on somebody with a disorder, especially nowadays, is villainized instantly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Malvolio is already a dark theme for a comedy, even mm -hmm. without upping the stakes with a, with, with a, a chemical imbalance. Yeah. Um, Viola, Viola's fear of commitment. It, he, Viola's fear of commitment, keeping her, it, it, causing her to desexualize herself, is interesting. Mm -hmm. um, which is not to say that, which, which is which is not to say that uh, eunuchs, which is no, she says I I shall be a eunuch to him. I will be like a boy who is castrated. I will be somebody without sexual ability. Mm -hmm. I think. I don't know where I'm going with this. I'm just, I'm just excited thinking about it. Yeah, it's another. I mean, it's another element to explore within the production. And we actually, we should probably move on because we are way over yeah, the time know. that I initially anticipated. But I mean, I it's all wonderful. <laughs> um, so the next segment I have planned for today is the Shakespearean text database. Mm. Um, and that is a segment where I use this wonderful resource called Open Source Shakespeare in order to search Shakespeare's plays um, through a search engine sort of thing that they've created. It's sort of an index for all of Shakespeare's text that you can search by word, by play, by year, by um, the genre of the play, uh, and then you can sort it in a variety of different ways as well. And today, I wanted to explore Shakespeare's bloodiest plays. Don't know why. Maybe it was just a, a, a dark morning for me for some reason, but I thought that would be kind of fascinating. And there, there's... Blood is, is a theme in a lot of Shakespeare's plays, and it has implications beyond just being human blood. Like, yeah. having blood on one's hands, you know, being a true metaphor and sometimes a literal embodiment of murder. Mm -hmm. um, so anyway, um, as sort of a control-type thing, I researched um, some comedies just to see how often the words blood, bleeding, bloody, blood um, appear in, in comedies. And for example, in As You Like It, we have nine instances of blood-related words. And in Midsummer, we have eight. So that's sort of um, to show in non-blood-themed plays how many times that word might appear. Um, can you guess... Which play blood words appeared most often in, based on the ones I searched? And granted, I did not search all of them. I just searched the plays that I thought to be the bloodiest. I, I'm torn between uh, Titus Andronicus and Henry VI, Part III. Um, so I'm going to put my money on Titus Andronicus. Well, I actually... Um, the, it is not... Titus Andronicus is not the answer. The answer is Richard III. No way! Yes, with 51 instances of blood-related words. Oh, Richard, my boy. Yes. Um, I played Richard in college, so... Oh, yeah? So, I feel him. Um, 
And, you know, Richard III is one of Shakespeare's true villains, right? I mean, he talks about killing people the entire play and plans on it and doesn't really have remorse yeah. for it. You know, infants, friends, people standing, anybody standing in his way. He you tells know? us he's a villain in his first speech. He yep. says, because I cannot play a lover, I am determined to prove a villain. That's yeah. what I'm going to do. Yep. He's, and, we can talk about this later, but his journey is from someone determined to prove a villain to someone whose remorse comes back to bite him at yeah. the most inopportune moment. Yep. And so therefore, I guess it would make sense that it is the the play with in most instances of the word blood. And, you know, maybe that doesn't make it the bloodiest play. And I would, but the point is I would not have expected this play to have more instances than perhaps the second or third most plays on this list, which if you'd like to take a guess at what they are. Second is Macbeth. Macbeth is third. Shut up. By one instance. So Macbeth has 42 instances of blood-related words, uh -huh. whereas Henry VI, part three, has 43. Wow. Yes. Wow. So wait, where's Titus Andronicus, which is... Titus Andronicus is way down the list. No way. Titus Andronicus and Coriolanus are tied with 29. That's insane. Yeah. Um... I mean, I guess it makes sense because Titus Andronicus is more about limbs and tongues and things. Yeah, yeah, and pies. And, and lots of pies. Yes. Um, so, yeah, they, I mean, it, the, the gore in that play is related to severed limbs and not necessarily talking about the blood, but more talking about the, the gruesomeness of the disembodiment, mm -hmm. um, which perhaps makes it even more gross. But I would say so. Um, also notable on this list... Uh, Julius Caesar at 32, that was number four. And then, um, just for fun, we decided to, uh, uh, Hamlet is also on this list at 28. Um, 28 instances of blood-related words. Um, and it's interesting to think that Hamlet is actually one of Shakespeare's longest plays, and Macbeth is by far the shortest mm -hmm. in Shakespeare's canon, and still comes in at number three on this list. If we were creating a ratio of appearances of the word blood to total words in the play or total lines in the play, Macbeth would seem to be the bloodiest because of just sheer number of instances in relation to the total, um, total length of the play. Um, also, just because it, you know, we thought it might be fun, I looked into Merchant of Venice, which is probably uh, one of the blood more blood related comedies sure. if merchant of venice is indeed a comedy um and that comes in with 19 so to give you an idea of where the bloodiest comedy lies right about there about uh, 10 instances below hamlet and titus andronicus so as fun as it has been to explore the theme of blood in shakespeare we have come to the end of the podcast so abby i want to ask you is there anything that you would like to tell the listeners about, and would you care to share how to get in touch with you on social media? Oh, gosh, absolutely. Um, I'm really excited to announce that I'll be teaching acting classes for young actors this June in NYC uh, for ages 9 to 14. You can find out more about that at my website, abbywild.com, under Coaching and Classes. And please find me on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at abbywild on both of those. Uh, I'd love to hear from you. Thank you so much for having me, Kyle. This was so much fun. Of course. It's been a pleasure. You'll have to come on the podcast much more often. I mean, I guess that would be okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And as for myself, my name's Kyle Downing. I'm a Shakespeare coach in New York City. You can find me on Facebook as NYShakesGuy or on Twitter or Instagram as at NYShakesGuy. 
as well as my Tumblr, which is NYShakesGuy. You can find me on YouTube as Kyle Downing, NYShakesGuy. And if you are interested in a Shakespeare coaching or just have a few listener questions for the podcast, you can send me an email at nyshakesguy at gmail.com. Keep an ear out for future episodes of Pith and Moment, a podcast for all things Shakespeare. And please check out my website at www.kyledowning.com slash nyshakesguy. For Abby Wilde, I'm Kyle Downing. Thanks for listening and keep up the hard work on your bard work.